All right, thanks for tuning in again, guys. Uh, today we have our, our uh, first third-time guest. Uh, Mikey's back here today uh, to talk about a topic that is less heroin and more history. So we're going yeah, uh, to be talking about the apocalyptic uh, cult that took place in Munster, Germany in the mid-1530s. Um, it's a really interesting story. We're going to give you kind of a synopsis. Um, but really, if you want the full story, um, there is a great episode of Hardcore H History with Dan Carlin uh, called Prophets of Doom. And it's all about this event. Um, but me and Mikey wanted to first like very quickly lay out this story and then kind of discuss the implications of the story and some of the supporting topics that go along with it. Um, so again, thanks for tuning in. It's uh, time to be frank. All right. So to get started in this story, a little bit of context is this is happening right after the Reformation. So Martin Luther has really opened up the world um, in terms of thought. In really uh, around 1520, he really uh, finalizes this movement. Um, called the Reformation, and this is where he splits off from the Catholic Church um, because of the problem that he has with indulgences, but also with some other points of theology with the Catholic Church. And so he uh, starts a group in Wittenberg, um, but he has writings that are going all around uh, Europe at this time, in the 15, early 1520s. Um, and he also goes to work on a German language version of the Bible and he publishes this um, near the end of the 1520s um, and so this is a big change because before this everybody who uh, read the Bible was was taught was reading it in Latin and it was usually um, the priests themselves who were reading the Bible and then they would interpret and give it to the people and so there was a very um, strong uh, what churchy people would say is a clergy laity distinction but what that means is um, there's a, a very big divide between the ministers or the priests and the lay people or just the common folk and the common folk could only do you know basically what the priests told them to do but the priests were the one interpreting the word and kind of leading the people spiritually so this this opens up the door um, Martin Luther's main ideas of sola scriptura and sola fide, only scripture really has the, the power of God's word, and only by faith can one be saved. And so he opens just Pandora's box, basically, at this time. And um, a lot of these people who get their hands on the Bible, um, they have a lot of differing thoughts. And so, as you would think when lay people get their hands on the Bible and when common folk get their hands on the Bible, they don't just interpret it the way that a, you know, a long time educated and, and really um, like formulaically educated priest would. Like the priests go through long, stringent and like very systematic, linear approaches to the Bible. Well, all these people are getting their hands on the Bible and they're reading it and some of them are interpreting it in weird ways. And when when you do that, when you interpret the Bible in weird ways, and you have a charismatic personality, 
people may listen to you, you know, and that's kind of what starts to happen is there is a group called the Anabaptists. And the group that we're really going to be talking about today is a, a sect, sect of the Anabaptists. It's not Anabaptists as a whole. Anabaptists, really all that means is they had a second baptism or they believed that in adult baptism rather than infant baptism. Even Luther was still doing infant baptism and many of uh, the contemporaries and especially the Catholic Church were doing infant baptism. These guys, the Anabaptists, um, would baptize people as adults because they felt like with their free volition they're choosing to follow God and that's when baptism should be done. So that's that's uh, kind of the group that these this sect comes from. So this sect though um, believes that the apocalypse is coming in Strasbourg in 1533. Um, there's a guy preaching about this. I think his name is Melkor. Um, and he's preaching about this this coming apocalypse, um, basically the book of Revelation happening then. Um, and so he preaches this, 1533 comes, and obviously it didn't happen. The end of the world did not come to Strasbourg. But a couple dudes are like, nah, it wasn't Strasbourg in 1533. It was it's going to be Munster, Germany, another city, in 1534. And so um, this guy, Bernard Rothman, is, is a preacher in Munster at that time. And he begins to preach a more and more Anabaptist, specifically this sect, this cultish sect of Anabaptist message in the city of Munster. The idea that the apocalypse is coming here. Um, this is going to become the new Jerusalem. And so this is becoming a more and more radicalized city. And... Um, Bernard Nipperdoling, an associate of Rothman, who is on the town council, begins printing the messages from Bernard Rothman, and they circulate around Northern Europe. So people are hearing this message around Northern Europe that the apocalypse is coming to Munster in 1534. So some people make their way to Munster, uh, but a lot of it is, is the people that are already there. Well, this town is made up of Catholics, uh, Lutherans and Anabaptists and so to put that on like a spectrum for you the Catholics are very much holding to the traditional like teachings that have been taught for centuries now the Lutherans are are becoming more like Martin Luther in their theology um, they're they're believe that they're saved by faith um, but they don't think that they need to be baptized as adults the Anabaptists, and specifically the Anabaptists here, think this this apocalypse is coming. Um, so as as Rothman gains uh, popularity in the city, the uh, the people in the city as well as the town council become more and more um, this Anabaptist sect that believes that that the apocalypse is coming and this is the place to be um, during the apocalypse, and so. As that happens, um, the, as the council moves towards a predominantly Anabaptist membership, the Catholics of Munster begin to flee under threat of death because the um, Anabaptists are saying, like, like, we don't want you here. We want you guys to leave. This is happening now. Like, the apocalypse is coming upon us. And so, like, if you don't leave, we're going to kill you. Um, and then... As it becomes more and more radical, they're they're like telling the Lutherans either convert 
to anabaptism and get rebaptized or um, leave. But you can't keep your stuff with you. If you leave, we're keeping your stuff. Um, and what's really interesting is is what what they're forming, and really this comes with the, the new preacher, Jan Matthias. He takes over, and um, when he takes over, he's bringing on this form of pre-Marxist communism. And what that means is everybody is sharing their stuff. Um, the, basically, ev everybody's stuff is no longer theirs. It's all everybody's. Um, and, and they're believing that this is going to be like the, the kind of like the heavenly New Jerusalem that is going to bring in uh, kind of this new age, right? And, and as the rest of the world kind of crumbles around them, that's what they think is going to happen. Um, and so the prince bishop is forced to leave the city and, and um, all of the, the Catholics and many of the Lutherans leave as well. Um, and the prince bishop takes his forces and sets up a siege around the city because they couldn't um, really take control within the city. So they're setting up a siege to make sure that nobody really gets out um, and also because he wants to take the city back over, right? Um, and so as that begins to happen, and it's, it's much more of a unified front um, with Jan Matthias in charge, um, that, you know, everybody is talking about how, you know, the end is coming and how they're going to do, they're going to do their kingdom and, and stuff like that. Um, and so Jan Matthias uh, in Easter of 1534 says that he has a vision and he's, he's one of those prophets who like, he, it, it seems like, and he treats it like he speaks directly to God. You don't know what he's hearing, but he like will turn around and look over his shoulder and it, it's like he's talking to God and then he'll turn around and he'll say God said this uh, and so one day he has a vision Easter of Easter of 1534 he has a vision that um, God tells him and 10 men to go outside of the city gate and attack the Prince Bishop's army and that they will be given victory and so he goes out there with 10 men the Prince Bishop looks at it at, at the 11 men there and he's like what and then he sends 500 of his own men to go you know attack them they kill them instantly so so Jan Matthias is dead the leader of this this sect uh is dead and and the prophet and um this city of Munster has has just witnessed this and so later that night uh what happens is quite crazy this guy um stands in in this town square and he's like that was supposed to happen. God told me, this is the guy who was second in command. His name is Jan von, van Leiden. Um, he's like, God told me this was going to happen. Um, and this is judgment for Jan Matthias's weak faith. It was his death. And so God once wanted to purify our group. And uh, he wants me to be the leader. And I'm going to marry Jan Matthias's wife. And so he does that, that night. Um, and so this movement is still radical. The prince um, will, attacks a couple times, and he gets thwarted uh, once because a lot of the soldiers were drunk, and they attacked early, um, which is just crazy, and once because the the defenses of the city were, 
were pretty strong and, and the townspeople would throw boiling water and they sincerely believed that, that this was God's will that they take this city and that they um, build the new Jerusalem. So they're able to thwart off a couple of attacks and eventually the prince is like, okay, we're just going to starve him out. Um, so as he does that, Jan van, van Leiden possibly gets caught cheating on his wife with another woman um, and he brings the town council together and he's like, oh, I think polygamy is what we should do. And so the town adopts the view of polygamy um, and Jan van Leiden becomes more and more of this authoritarian character, whereas in earlier times in this revolt, um, the, the possessions of the city were more shared. It's becoming more centralized with the leadership and Jan van Leiden specifically basically tells other people what's true and what's not and he can basically kill anybody at any time um as the quote-unquote prophet of god and so he's becoming more and more obviously kind of power hungry um and so during this time though uh, people's food diminishes to the point where they start eating shoelaces um and the prince bishop to make his siege even stronger builds a fortifying wall like probably like a quarter mile outside the city so nobody can get outside of it like circulating the whole city um and so the siege is really on there's no like sneaking food in so people start starving they're eating shoelaces um and it becomes more and more a problem for the leadership of the city because people are starting to say you know we can't really stay here if we're going to starve to death so uh, eventually jan van leiden says you know in the eastern of Easter of 1535 God's going to give us victory and then we're going to build our worldwide kingdom um, and so he he, um, he makes that proclamation a, a couple months before then um, and as that approaches he then stands up on Easter in 1535 and says oh did I did it sound like I said a physical um, provision from God phys physical victory well that was wrong it's a spiritual victory that he's offering. We're all going to go to heaven, um, but physically we're not going to win. Um, and then so people obviously are, are like just at a loss at this point. Um, but they still, you know, have this backbone. They've been entrenched in this, you know, ideology for a couple of years at this point. Um, and so eventually enough people are going outside the city and the Prince Bishop is killing a lot of them, but a couple of them he... he recruits his spies and so he takes these spies and they give him information where they're able to get like 500 troops into the city and then while they're in the city um they're fighting the the weak monster you know people at this point because they're you know starving to death um and then the morning after this attack um they signal for the reinforcements to come in and attack the city and since nobody's at the walls because they're attacking the 500 that are within the city um, they're able to storm into the city and take back over and at the end what happens is you know the prince bishop gains control of the city again and what he does is he's like okay Jan van Leiden um, Bernard Nipperdoling and one other of the leaders he he has them burned and, and torn apart to death like he basically has like tongs and like rods with like uh, like fire on them and he has them pull apart their muscles and their tendons 
as they die, and then they and then they stab them to death after they've like tortured them for a specifically you know like like an hour, um, each of them, and then he has their bones um, put into these cages that are still up in Munster to this day, um, as a sign of like this should never happen again. People should follow me. Da da da. Um, and so that's that's kind of the story. Um, if you want a more in-depth version of that story, again, go to Hardcore History with Dan Carlin. The episode is called Prophets of Doom. It's a great episode. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, a couple implications of the story and how this fits into kind of our frame frame of view of the world. Um, so the first question we're, we're really going to address is, how does this fit into the Reformation? And, uh, Mikey, what are your thoughts with that? Uh, first, uh, thanks for having me back. Um, I, I do appreciate being on the show. And uh, I did want to ask real quick, um, did you go ahead and look at the uh, picture of the cathedral in Munster with the cages still hanging up there? Yeah, I, I saw it earlier today. It's pretty metal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's also a pun. <laughs> um yeah, so broader implications with the Reformation. I think the first thing that I wanted to say is I'm, I've listened to Dan Carlin's episode um, a, a couple of times. I think this was my third or fourth go-around. And uh, I am consistently amazed at how quickly everything happened. You know, you've got obviously the story itself takes place within – um, two years. I mean, the, the majority of it happens within about a year and a half, less than a year and a half. And then you've got uh, the fact that, you know, the Reformation, I mean, uh, Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the uh, the church door in 1517, right? So, right. you know, less than 20 years later, uh, you've already got kind of all this madness going on. And the, the German translation of the Bible, as you pointed out, was only a few years old at this point so yeah. presumably these guys we know that um leiden was a tailor i doubt he was trained in latin i don't know enough I about believe his Matthias background was a baker yeah that, exactly so you know you've got these guys who presumably had to rely on the translation that luther created uh to even be able to read the bible themselves and already within a few years uh, things are kind of spinning out of control in this incident. So I don't know. I, I, I am consistently uh, amazed by how quickly things happen. Yeah, and, and one thing we didn't even touch on is is the Peasants' War, which in 1525, basically a bunch, uh, and this is within the Reformation, a bunch of peasants feel like this is not just a spiritual revolution. This is a political revolution, and, and we as people like we think that we are equal with uh the people who are in charge and so they revolt against the the people in power um and luther specifically is not for this because he was really saved by his basically prince um prince frederick uh that's like really the only reason he was able to survive the ref er, survive his rebellion was this prince protected him. And so because he saw, you know, because he had that, and then also because he believed that human authority was put there by God. And so he's like, I don't think we need a political uprising out of this. I think what we need is a spiritual uprising. He was opposed to this peasant's war. Um, 
but it gets thwarted out pretty quickly. Um, but it's led by people who take what Luther said and, and take it further. Um, and in some ways, this is some of the beginning of things that happen even in the American Revolution, where a lot of the people who go over to the Americas are people trying to practice, you know, their their religion and, and what they believe. Um, and they're coming from lands where they're not able to do that. And so they go to the New World in order to practice their free, you know, free religion. Um, and that's something that's protected in our First Amendment. That's something that's kind of at the core of, of even building the Americas is like this idea of people being equal. Now, obviously, they, they said that with, you know, like one hand in their mouth um, with slavery and things like that. Um, but even in the Declaration of Independence, you know, it starts out, you know, we believe these truths are self-evident, that all men are created equal. Like, they're coming out of these ideas that that um, that are kind of floating around during the Reformation and, and that are being kind of born out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- this would be, um, you know, a little bit of a tangent. But I, I do always think that it's interesting that... Of course, you do have the hypocrisy, right, where the the founding fathers of the United States are both, you know, owning slaves and also talking about the equality and freedom of every created man. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that we do have writing from, you know, writings from these um, founding fathers talking about, you know, what are the ethics around this? Because even they were kind of tortured by their own hypocrisy to some extent, some more than others. Um, but what's interesting is you don't have anything like that uh, in ancient Rome or Greece, where, you know, in Greece in particular, they invented democracy, right? They invented the idea of, uh, you know, the citizen being, um, you know, every every Athenian, right? Um, and yet they had no qualms with the idea of people being outside of citizenship, even if they were, you know, born, uh, you know, men just like the rest of their Greek brethren um or you know in particular slaves they never wrestled with that and i think that that does speak um at least in part to kind of the christian ethics that you know potentially are related to what comes out of the reformation right that this idea that um we're not just talking about the people that we want to talk about this does extend to every created person and so when it comes to the american revolution that idea is really difficult to reconcile with the practices, and even they saw that to a large extent. Yeah, and I think, you know, the interesting thing is, is, like, me personally, like, I empathize with the peasants in the Peasants' War in, in right. some regard. Like, yeah, you are equal. Like, yeah, there's a lot of BS that's been been there. But the, the problem, and I think, um, I think what Luther stood on was the idea that we need to focus on what's important. Yeah. And what's important is that the gospel has been lost. Um, and, and that's that sola fide. And um, good, like, good understanding of the Bible. Because, you know, what a lot of Catholics will say about the Reformation is it, it opened the door to all these heresies, right? And, and that's the big problem. And, like, if we just had the, 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 the guidance of the church in interpreting the Bible, then, yeah, things would be okay. And so... We need to keep that clergy-lady distinction. Um, and, and and what Luther points out is that the church is full of heresy. 
the indulgences, which is where people are paying for their relatives to move up in purgatory towards heaven. Um, and, and what they're paying is really for new churches to be built and in giving money to the church. Where, you know, we know internally that that idea is terrible. The idea that you get spiritual rewards for donating money. Um, that's not something in the Bible. And it's, it's obviously, you know, something somebody would use to get rich, to make money. It's like, okay, God told you to give me money. So give me money. And then people are like, okay, well, God told me, God told us to, so we'll give him money. Uh, and then that guy buys a private jet that happens today. Right. Uh, and he's like, yeah, you know, God wanted me to have a private jet. Yeah. And that's what greed is. And that's something the Bible talks about too. So, um, the, Luther goes into a lot of detail um, in his lifetime about the the thing the problems he sees in the church, and he believes that the whole church is is caught up in heresy, specifically, you know, indulgences, works like the idea that you have to work to get to heaven, you have to do good. It's not by grace, it's not by faith, it's by you know doing what God tells you. Yes, faith might be part of it, um, but that's by no means the whole way to get to heaven and luther's like no the only way to get to heaven is through the forgiveness offered by jesus christ or jesus christ's death on the cross um and so he's like there's insane heresy that's uh, prevalent throughout the whole catholic church and so he's like yeah it's better to open the doors of freedom for people even some people to find the truth than it is for us to all remain in heresy. And and the idea is that the the people can hold the church accountable if they have the primary um, sources to go to, which would be the Bible in this, this case. Like, if they can read God's word for themselves, then it's on them to understand for themselves. And the responsibility isn't just on the church to tell them what the, what God says. It... it it's it is dangerous because there are there is the freedom to interpret you know terribly and and we see that in this story like obviously yeah they interpret the bible horribly right um and i mean you you wonder how they get the apocalypse is coming in 1534 in strasburg yeah right um or in munster you know why yeah. specifically there um i think the other thing too is they 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 start believing in the prophets uh, these guys who are probably false prophets, you know, um, I, I mean, I think clearly yeah, false prophets, certainly, um, you know, and Jan Matthias and uh, Jan Van Leiden, when these guys talk like they talk directly to God, then yes, you know, people are going to view that as God's word and that has power. And so when they when they hear things that they think are from God, you know, somebody who's not a critical thinker, somebody who's not like you know testing the words of people and and like really considering the truth if you're gonna just follow anything you could follow this you know right um and some people you know they who knows why so many people were led into this but a lot of it has to do with char charisma um we've seen it today you know a lot of these charismatic figures can get a following not by you know rational arguments but by you know the energy that they provide and and the um kind of the power that they communicate with you know 
Um, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, um, I, I guess I, I did want to say that you know it's interesting that Luther and the Reformation is not you know coming out of a vacuum. Um, it, it's not something that uh, comes from nowhere. You know, you see leading up to the Reformation that there are serious problems in the church that people are frustrated with. Um, but they're not always the problems that kind of we think of uh, first and foremost today. And I, I do think that when you have um, serious problems and then you have this kind of, um, you have this built up frustration and then this period of disillusionment, which the Reformation brought clearly to a head, yeah. uh, that, that that's a moment when, um, you know, if people's faith in an institution is shaken, then they're more willing to listen to, um, you know, other ideas and other sources, right? The problem that we can see, obviously, is that a charismatic leader can be very influential and very dangerous in those circumstances. Um, I was always, you know, pretty surprised to learn that uh, one of the things that, at least um, in England in particular, leading up to the Reformation, uh, a consistent frustration that was vented by the people uh, that we have record of was actually not for um, kind of great systematic sweeping changes um, it was more so related to the fact that they felt like they had priests who were not equipped they felt like they were inadequate and that they didn't actually know much about the bible and they didn't really have much to say about the bible and they were frustrated about that and they wanted better quality uh, spiritual leaders and they also wanted better access to things like homilies and teachings that were supposed to be instructive you know they were supposed to be in their own tongue even if they believed that the mass should still be in latin and uh, done behind you know a screen uh, that they were completely disconnected from um, so you know that's that's one side of things right in england but then in france you have the um the schism with the you had multiple popes at one point and in a couple centuries preceding the Reformation you had the Borgia popes who are obviously famous because of the television show but I mean they really were these um, these awful uh, corrupt leaders in the church who looked like wolves in sheep's clothing and they weren't even that new you know they took things to an, an excess and kind of a public display of wealth and grandeur that hadn't been seen before but people knew that the popes were absolutely corrupt even leading up to that and so you know when luther hits the stage i don't think that he really i i'm one of these people who uh doesn't believe that luther really knew when he nailed the 95 theses to the door that he was actually saying anything that crazy i i don't think that luther knew kind of dan carlin takes kind of the opposite view he seems to think that you know it's like he knew that he was running the risk of being burned at the stake. I don't think that Luther really saw it that way. I think that what he saw was a practice that made no sense to him, and he was calling it out. He was calling it out for what it was, and he wanted it to be discussed, and he expected to be able to discuss it. And it was kind of the push and pull of, uh, of Luther and uh, um, you know, church officials who came to talk to him about it uh, that really started to flesh out you know what actually what i believe about what i've read in the bible is different from what you're saying and i'm not willing to back down on what i'm saying and and it kind of goes from there right and that all happens very quickly 
I, I agree with you. Um, I mean, I think the key thing to think about, so he posts the 95 theses in 15 sep- That sounds like theses, but whatever. I know. It always uh, does. Yeah, but he posts them in 1517. Um, and in that three years between then and 1520, um, when he stands in front of the Holy Roman Emperor and he refuses to recant, it, 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 he progressively becomes more and more convinced of the fact that he needs to move away from the Catholic Church. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like when he puts those up there, he thinks that that's what's going to happen. He thinks he's going to reform, help reform the, within the church right. and help bring this reformation like to the Catholic Church. And what becomes abundantly clear in those three years is that that won't and cannot happen. And so that's when um, the Reformation really takes off and people and, and, and they start truly practicing in Wittenberg a Christianity that was foreign to the Catholics. And um, but I mean, it was, it, again, progressively worked its way there in, in a very quick time. But I, I do agree with you about the 95 theses in 1517. He, he was not doing that with the intention of, you know, starting this worldwide revolution right. or, or this European revolution. Um, but that's, you know, progressively what happened. Yeah. And, and kind of going back to my, my comment earlier about just being amazed at how quickly things go. It's like he nails, you know, these complaints just about uh, what he thinks is an errant doctrine that has somehow, you know, it's made it into. Indulgences. It's mostly indulgences. There's some other things. It's mostly around indulgences. And, yeah. and he's like, hey, this is ridiculous. And, you know, the way that it's being operated in Germany is objectively gross. Uh, and, you know, he kind of assumes that, that that's the way that it's being handled outside of Germany. He has no reason not to think that. But, you know, he complains about it. And within a couple of years, he's calling the Pope the Antichrist. Yeah. It, it's just the speed at which everything changes. You know, you look at it and you go, okay, but it's not born out of a vacuum. vacuum. There was kindling on, you know, in the fireplace ahead of time. And Luther doesn't i don't think that he realizes it but he lights this match and things just go from there well and the printing press becomes an important tool like his, his writings are getting spread around europe at this very rapid pace um to to further your point you know jan hus, hus or hus in the previous century you know started a revolution it got squashed by the church but he didn't have the printing press and he didn't have the momentum or the Prince Frederick that, that Luther had. And so Luther kind of had this perfect timing where all these things kind of met up to protect him yeah. um, and allow him to start this revolution that Hoos didn't have. And so, yeah, I mean, anybody, it's kind of evidence that anybody who takes reading the Bible seriously and understands, you know, what God's trying to communicate, they can find that message. Multiple people did throughout the centuries. But when you have an authoritarian government that goes unquestioned, an authoritarian church that goes unquestioned and, and will murder heretics, um, people are going to be, unless you're in- incredibly brave or courageous, you know, you're, you're going to silence yourself so that you can keep living, right? right. So, so these, you know, it, it's just the perfect timing for Luther um, and when that opens the floodgates, I mean, that's when, you know, these other thoughts and, and, and kind of the idea here too, is like, we have so many denominations today, right? 
Um, and you got the Lutheran, the Baptist, you know, uh, Methodist, all, all sorts of different denominations. And this is where it comes from within the Protestant, you know, movement is like people are making different stances um, about what the Bible has to say and what's important. Um, and, and the problem, you know, we see in, in a lot of the Protestant history um, after this movement is that we have a very difficult time staying unified on what's important. And a lot of times people add peripheral theology to what what we believe to be important, right? And, and that has caused so many divisions over the years. And, and what Luther was trying to do, like his intention, um, was really to like hopefully unify people in what the Bible really says. Um, but you have to come to that for yourself. Um, and that's kind of the lesson I think of the Reformation is like, you can't, you can't just follow what one person says. Um, if you do, you're, you really need to follow what God says. And you know, some people might have a different interpretation on that. But I think if you read the Bible on a regular basis and you, you know, you pray to God and you have a, a, a relationship with God. I think he makes it clear to you what's important and what's there. And, um, you know, what reads throughout the whole Bible is, is this message of love, uh, of forgiveness. Um, and, and, you know, what Luther really tries to emphasize. But there's so many other people emphasizing other things um, that just clouds things. And it's like, you have to you know, think for yourself and read the Bible and like, what's the, what's important here and what's okay to disagree on because there's some things yeah. that in the Bible are left, you know, up to some level of human interpretation. Um, and there's things that everybody, you know, I, I don't know a single theologian that I agree on every single thing with, which can be really frustrating, which can be frustrating, <laughs> but it's okay. Like I know a lot of theologians that I agree with the most important things with. Yeah, absolutely. And if we can work together while agreeing that a lot of these things we disagree about are peripheral and not as important, and unifying on what is emphasized, the gospel message, um, you know, God being, you know, three persons, one in essence, right? The, um, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. If we can get around the central ideas, and, and specifically the gospel, and unify on that message and sharing that to the world. I think the church is going to be better off. But we are, we we are very much, you know, uh, divided on a lot of things. And I think we do need to work in a lot of ways to kind of move together, in some regard, um, just because that's what God wants, you know. Um, and I think it's yeah, that's kind of the what happens within this Reformation. There's so many divisions and splits. And everybody who emphasizes all these other things, and it's like, okay, yeah, you might think that, but is it is that at the center of this faith? Yeah, yeah, it, it's crazy to think that, you know, there was a time, I think in our culture, especially today, we're really used to, and especially with the United States being a country that was founded on freedom of religion, we're very much used to this idea that it's okay to disagree win people over with a better argument with you know doing things better than they do them um and kind of this like 
um, respectful competition in a way. Um, it, it's crazy, though, and, and really difficult for us, I think, um, as modern readers to wrap our minds around a time where that those ideas had not yet come about. They had no concept in 1534 for the idea that one state could be run with people believing multiple things and that that should just be left alone. They had an idea of, because you know, even in this story in Munster, there are Catholics, there are Lutherans, and then there are Anabaptists who come in. Um, so you have multiple viewpoints and they kind of try to make it work. Uh, but generally, you know, the idea that you see in, especially in Germany at this time is um, more like a truce, more like a treaty and less unity. Right. It wasn't, um, hey, we're going to pull together and, you know, we're, we're not going to be at each other's throats. It was we're putting our swords down for now, but eventually we'll get back to fighting and we'll see who's the winner. You know, we'll see whether it's Lutheranism or Catholicism or Anabaptism that will win the day. Um, but that's the way that it was for a long time. And, and by the end of the Reformation and all of the unfortunate bloodshed that it did that it did bring, um, that is something that is born out of it. This idea that you can kind of um, not compromise, but learn to live together in uh, in harmony. And so, I guess that yeah, that's got Agree value to in disagree. and of itself. Yeah, and and I think you know the interesting thing in in my opinion is you know I believe that God gave us free will. Now I think that's that our will is limited. Like you know, there's there's a lot of limits to it. We have you know, our bio biology predisposes us to certain things. And, um, you know, it, there's only certain choices that we can make only in the present moment. Like we're unable to control the past and the future or yeah, the past and the future. Um, but with God giving us free will, I think that is kind of like what he wanted is people to be able to make their own decisions for themselves. Um, and, and that's something that sometimes gets lost in, in Christianity. Um, I think a lot of people want to, you know, force others, in, 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 even in other worldviews, force others to believe what they believe. And it's like, God gave us free will because he wants us to be able to make our own decisions and to think for ourselves. Um, and so allowing people to have other viewpoints. And yes, we should try to persuade but we shouldn't try to pressure God. I, I think that's what God does is God tries to persuade through, you know, different um, forms of revelation, whether it's through his word, people in our lives could be a divine revelation. Um, but he wants to try to persuade us rather than, you know, force us to believe something. And, and that's why he allows us to make choices for ourselves rather than, um, you know, programs us like robots right yeah um and so that, that idea that's that's really much really kind of birthed out of the reformation in a lot of ways is i think a godly idea that people should think for themselves that they should you know that we can live in harmony with people we disagree with we don't have to you know we can try to persuade them towards what we believe but we should not pressure or force people to believe something that they don't believe yeah um and i do think it's interesting just kind of on that last thought that it seems like in this story uh the idea that 
Satan lying to you or posing as divine revelation never really seems to enter anyone's mind. <laughs> this idea that a, a prophet uh, could be, um, you know, deceived doesn't really seem to be something that they that they have a category for. And and I don't I don't want to fault them too much because I know that in general they had been trained their whole lives and so had their ancestors for who knows how long to just obey authority right and people we know that people naturally biologically have a desire to adhere to authority um, but it is interesting to me that that there doesn't really seem to be a category for um, you know well could this be coming from Satan do we know that this revelation is coming from God and I do think that um, maybe uh, today in our experience we'd be hopefully a little bit quicker to uh to to count that as a potential explanation for uh the miraculous yeah yeah that's a good point um so to kind of move forward how do politics and religion play into this story so i mean that's a very general question um yeah but i think the the what i find incredibly interesting is that this kind of the rule that they set up in Munster during this time is a pre-Marxist form of communism. They basically, the the government of the city begins to own all of the property within the city. So nobody has their own property, right? It's all owned by, you know, kind of together as a conglomerate. That kind of starts out at the beginning, but what, what, what it turns into by the end is really Jan van Leiden owns everything. Yeah. Uh, and he, that becomes more and, and more clear th yeah, over this year and a half to two year period. Um, but the idea at the beginning is this, you know, um, idea of like equality and everybody's, you know, everybody is part of this heavenly kingdom that we're starting. Um, and, you know, we all share everything with one another. And I think it's wild because, you know, you think of communism um, starting with Karl Marx. And this is like pretty clearly a, a case where it, it, it comes into play before he, he's born. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah. So I guess uh, just as a, a precursor, uh, you know, for for the listeners who don't maybe know me and Frank's uh, relationship, we, we tend to disagree uh, somewhat on the uh, the, the political issues, um, which is interesting because we used to agree a lot um, as, uh, you know, even until fairly recently, I kind of switched, uh, switched it up on him and, and started to change my mind on some things. We agree on some on on quite a bit of things we agree on a lot we, we enjoy discussing but, even when we disagree yes yes but uh yeah so so you know i know that we we might be viewing this from uh from two different perspectives potentially but i do think Correct. that you know the way that things play out it, it kind of seems hard um to i i find it hard to believe that uh that anybody would necessarily be cheering for the way that things play out in munster um no but it, you know, it is it is really interesting, and there's this uh, there's a book on socialism. I wish that I remembered the name um, of it off the top of my head. I should have grabbed that. Uh, but but I was reading this book on socialism, and it looks at kind of the history of the thoughts on socialism in general. And there's actually you know ancient Greek uh, philosophers, not a lot, but there's at, at least one um, who pretty clearly lays out this sort of like 
especially I'd say even Maoist utopia um, idea and uh, the philosopher doesn't really lay it out as being actually a good thing I believe it's satirical um, but it is <laughs> it is interesting that you know kind of this idea of everybody is completely equal across class across gender everybody wears the same things everybody adheres to the same things everybody shares everything um, you know that that is an idea that pops up from time to time it does seem like potentially our modern concept of you know, especially like the Marxist tradition, but even before him, there were, you know, many socialist thinkers. That's true. Um, and it seems like the kernels of what they were kind of expounding on is born out of this, is born out of the Reformation, the early Reformation with the schismatic movements, the peasants' revolts, the, uh, you know, Anabaptists and, and sharing property in kind. And then you see in the English Civil War, uh, there develops pretty quickly in the Commonwealth that follows uh, this idea of these people called the levelers and the diggers. And, you know, the levelers are like people who want to level society and make everyone equal. They had this motto, um, when, when Adam plowed and Eve span, who then was the gentleman? Uh, kind of this idea that if you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, there is no nobility, right? Um, and, and so I, I think that that's, that's very interesting that a lot of what we see today as being this incredibly secular and incredibly atheist movement, um, largely thanks to Marx and Engels, um, yeah. is actually born out of this kind of Christian schismatic thing that pops up from time to time in the post-Reformation period. Um, yeah, when it comes to the way that it plays out, honestly, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm kind of just like baffled and fascinated by how in such again in such a short time it went from we're all in on this idea i think that people genuinely the anabaptists were genuinely into the idea of equality and sharing everything in kind and pretty quickly turns into absolute tyranny violence and hierarchical structure and you do tend to see that mirrored in communist movements in the modern era. And I guess I, I'm just kind of left thinking, you know, the pattern is pretty clear. Is this inevitable? But what is the, what is the explanation? You yeah. know, and I don't know. I wish that Dan Carlin maybe had uh, gone into that a little bit more. What, what are your thoughts? So I think, I think it's a really good question. I think that, um, you know, one thing I'll say is I think a lot of the, uh, governments that claim to be communist today, um, it's kind of a marketing move. It's 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 their way of saying, you know, look at what Marx writes. He wants equality. That's what we want. But really, these are, um, you know, dictatorships. You know, authoritarian fascist regimes um, who who lead under the guise of communism. Um, so, but is that inevitable when people try to bring up, um, like the, the word you brought up, utopian idea of like equality within society, um, is inevitably going to become this authoritarian regime? And I think, I think it's very, what, what's obvious is that it's very difficult. Um, I think a lot of the problems that they point to, though, are also very legitimate, like, the nobility, you know, historically, what they're looking at is very corrupt. 
you know, um, the church that they're, you know, that is being critiqued a lot in this movement, the Catholic Church, um, which it, which has this authoritarian stance on truth, like we tell you what truth is, they have been led astray. Um, and they're corrupt, you know, and, and, and a lot of kings, even in the Bible, um, the authoritarian leaders of these, you know, uh, nations are corrupt and they do evil things. Um, and so to criticize that makes a lot of sense. Now, the uh, plausibility of bringing up this this society where everybody is viewed as equal and um, everybody shares with one another, I, I am an optimistic human being and I think if you know, I, I do believe that God gave us free will. Um, I, I look at passages like the end of Acts 2, and I see, um, you know, what some would describe as like kind of a socialistic, you know, it's not a government, but it's it's a it, like a socialistic church in some regard of like people, you know, sharing with one another, um, sharing their lives with one another. And I... I I definitely agree that like that's what heaven's gonna be like in a big way. It's like nobody's gonna be like all butthurt about money and and like being greedy. Like everybody yeah, yeah, is absolutely. going to be on the same page. Now in a fallen world, we do have a sinful nature. If I think that you know, if we you know all chose together or a vast majority and we had the power to do it, I think it's possible to have something that looked like it. it wouldn't be perfect by any means yeah um and i mean is it worth trying for you know uh, there's there's obviously a lot of risks um i think the problem a lot of times is these charismatic figures come up and they become the people that everybody listens to and, and the problem is that people don't think for themselves It'd be very much a society where people would have to think for themselves. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna say it's likely, or anything like that. Is it possible? I think you know, as a society where people are really view each other as equals and share with one another, and, and are you know working together in a common good that doesn't displace the individual. Um, I mean, I, I think with free will, a lot of things are possible. I, and, and, and I think with politics, too, in general, like a lot of people talk about and a lot of Christians talk about, it's never going to be perfect, da-da-da. Like, God gave us free will. Let's make choices. Our choices have consequences, both positive and negative. If we make positive consequences, I believe that positive change can happen. Now, is it going to be easy by any means? No. Um, but... I think to just be like all like oh let's give up till heaven, um, yeah I think that's I, I I think that's pessimistic. Yeah, see, and this is I think you know part of the the problem that that Frank and I have uh, because ultimately I agree with you on a lot of what you said, mm -hmm. but I am a pessimist, uh, <laughs> and so here's the problem: so we agree on a lot, and then we try to apply it to you know. 21st century American political 
discussions and the optimism versus pessimism I think kind of drives us in in different directions a lot of times not all the time yeah. but but a lot of times um, you know our, our Christian ethics will also a lot of times bring us together um, but it, it's interesting that you know I, I think Dan Carlin points this out that Luther kind of made this point of when it came to this whole idea of you know sharing everything and, and this like uh, you know proto-communism I believe what Luther's stance was, hey, if you want to get together and share things together, do it, right? Like, yeah. if you want to try to recreate Acts 2 with yourselves, you're welcome to do that. Uh, you know, there obviously, that's biblical. Um, what, I, what I disagree with is the idea of uh, charity under compulsion, right? Mm -hmm. and, tr and entrusting a centralized authority to, uh, to, you know, demand how that's going to play out. Uh, from from the top down because ultimately I agree I, I would love to be in a society where um, where we could have something that reflects the end of Acts 2 um, and you know we could argue about why that happens in Acts and you know what that might say about all kinds of things but ultimately we can all agree as Christians it's a beautiful picture right I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that and Correct. there was a time where it did work for a time Yes. and a place um, so so certainly it's not something that should not be you know that that's not a, a Christian goal of some kind uh, but it's just you know when we when we look at okay what does that mean for how I'm gonna vote uh, in the primaries you know <laughs> things get really hairy and and things look a lot different but but you know ultimately I do think that we share a lot of common ground there yeah I mean I think I think there's it, it's really interesting. It's an interesting topic because it's been so radicalized and, and things like yeah, that. But absolutely, um, you know, I, I think the ideas of freedom and um, and greed and you know are kind of at the center of these ideas. And I think what a lot of people when we talk about communism fail to talk about is is marx does have like a really good critique of capitalism like he points out a lot of the problems that we see in the economic inequality of today now does he have like a very plausible solution it it, it would be incredibly difficult um and and you know i i, I like that we can have these conversations with like you know sincerity and like talk about these things and it's interesting um you know it, like 50 years ago in this country you know we we had the or 70 or so we had the red scare and everybody would just you know uh and anybody who talked about marx or communism was a bad guy and, and there's a lot more nuance to the conversation and uh i i think there's some you know merit to the ideas of freedom that are promoted within capitalism but i think um, I think ultimately it can lead to greed, which um, works against the human nature. What's the whole answer to politics in this world? You know, that's something we all have to kind of wrestle with. And I don't, right. I don't, I don't know that anybody's going to come to the, you know, the best possible answer. But I think we can work towards we can work towards progress. Yeah. Um, and that's where we're kind of on the same page on, and um, we can work towards you know good things now what that looks like things like that you know that's up for debate a lot 
Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it's just really interesting how that happens within this story. And I like your background into like, you know, Greeks and, and like how socialism has been talked about over, over time. But like, it's not, it's not easy. Like if, if something was going to work, it would need to be the people working together. Yeah on like a similar power level you know yeah like everybody truly viewing each other as equals and that's very hard you can't have a Leiden which no, is interesting you can't have because, a Leiden. because in some ways it feels like in this story you needed a Leiden you needed a Matthias yeah. for this stuff to happen but at the same time it can't be successful if you have a Matthias or a Leiden I mean you gotta so have like you a, know it's it's like you gotta have an 22. unselfish Leiden. Yeah, which you know, <laughs> where it, is that? Where guy? is that? Well, we, yeah. I, if he exists, we haven't seen him. But, I mean, you know, if, if people think for themselves more and more, hopefully they, you know, hopefully they, you know, vote for what they see progress as. Yeah. Um. Anyway, um, so we talked about how this is the Anabaptists. Um, I think this is you know kind of an interesting topic. The view on baptism. It's really interesting how the church really became, you know, and even some, uh, even a lot of the Protestants were uh, of this, you know, infant baptism mindset. Yeah. Um, and the, the the Anabaptist, which is a bigger movement than than just this sect, like right. it birthed the um, Mennonites and, and some other uh, sects in the church. Um, why do you think that infant baptism? played a role for so long yeah it is strange isn't it because it's never in the bible yeah it definitely has to be done through church tradition and people are very adamant about it yeah yeah well i guess one thing i did want to add about the anabaptists and and anytime you hear about the anabaptists if people are trying to be fair at all to them um you're going to hear the disclaimer that unfortunately we just don't know enough about them um because they were so heavily persecuted um largely due to this story but but also um, outside of it um, they rarely had a chance to actually sit down and write anything that we get to have and read today um, and so we we don't have a lot other than some of the radicals like uh, the your nipper darling right yeah. from from the anabaptists or even the the mostly peaceful anabaptists because we do know that eventually they managed to find um, some safety and security in moravia and then from there, places like the United States and Canada, um, and and from those from this movement, the Anabaptists, we get like the Amish and the Quakers and the Mennonites. And the Quakers and, are and famously pacifist. Are, are super pacifist and largely kind of agrarian socialists in, in a way. They they share mm. a lot more than they take, right? So you know, we want to be fair to them, um, but they were absolutely despised at this time and a really cruel um, way that. Um, people would kind of play this joke on Anabaptists because they hated them so much was that they would give them the quote second baptism and it, it meant drowning them to death. Um, you <laughs> I'm know, sorry to laugh. I mean, it's crazy. you know, it, it's this dark humor, right? It's yeah. this really, and, and there is something twistedly kind of funny about that. Um, but yeah, so, so that's the Anabaptists. Now, honestly, our church, a non-denominational church that Frank and I both belong to is uh, under a broader kind of description of Anabaptist, right? Because we often practice adult baptism. That's yeah. kind of a hallmark of our church. Um, I would say that that's one of the only things that we really do closely share in common with this movement. Um, but yeah, it, it's weird. And Frank, you know that I kind of have some 
some, I guess, maybe weird feelings about baptism. Yeah. Um, largely from the fact that I was infant baptized when I was a baby. I grew up in the Lutheran church. And so, obviously, the Lutherans still have not uh, gotten away from infant baptism. And I'm about to have my first child, and so I actually had to have the conversation with my mother about this because she asked, are you going to have her baptized uh, when she's born? And I had to, well, actually, she cornered my wife uh, when <laughs> before, you know, when I wasn't there, and, and she tried to get the answer from her. And my wife kind of went, you know, well, it's not something that I feel very strongly about. She grew up in, in our church, and so it's not something that um, she's ever really had to think much about. Yeah. But, uh, but I went back to my mom, and I, I told her straight up, you know, no, we're not going to have her infant baptized, and here's why. Um, we don't think that it's biblical. We think it is a choice that an adult needs to make. Um, but it's weird, you know, for as much as it was hated, uh, I remember reading in St. Augustine's Confessions that he says now he's kind of advocating for an infant baptism but not directly um but i remember that he says that his mother i believe her name is monica that she refused to let him get baptized as a kid and they had this idea now this is born out of a whole different problem of theology which is that uh people you know once they're baptized that's when they have like all their sins forgiven and then after that it's kind of this like works faith you know back and forth thing um, so you wait until you're done with all your youthful sinning, then you get baptized, and then that way you get all the major ones out of the way, <laughs> forgiven, they're behind you, and now you can move forward with a righteous life. So she refuses to let him get baptized, and he, because Augustine is in many ways kind of a, a conduit between Paul's theology on grace and Luther's theology on grace, one of the major voices that we have that connects those time periods, mm -hmm. he's thinking, why would you wait? It doesn't make any sense. Go ahead and have me baptized uh, at an early age. Um, so I guess all of that to say, it is interesting to me that they were so adamantly against um, the adult baptism when in fact you have famous records of the early church not practicing infant baptism that yeah. they would wait until they were adults um it seems like the biggest problem that they have is this idea of being rebaptized uh, or second baptized but even that really it's not just that i i, I because they're, they're worried that people won't get baptized and then you're going to have non-christians in a christian society and that they can't reconcile with and they they refuse to um what, what are your thoughts well, I think I think it's especially if your main, you know, if you get to the sola scriptura, your main book of God's word is the Bible. There's really no examples of infant baptism. I think it's pretty clear and in Matthew 28, you know, Jesus says baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it, it, okay, one thing that I want to make clear too is salvation in our opinions, yeah. is not uh, conditional on being baptized. That's important. You just accept Christ's um, death as your forgiveness, and that is it. You are forgiven. Past, present, future. Past, present, future, exactly. Um, but it is a tradition that the Bible does promote, um, is that people get baptized as a proclamation of faith um, to people in their lives. It's a symbolic thing. Um, and 
it's something that we see time and time again in the Bible happens to adults. And I think the thing is, is like the baby doesn't know, like doesn't remember. There's nothing to it. Um, I think it's pretty clear that baptism is something one's supposed to decide for oneself. Yeah. Um, because these people all choose to be baptized. You know, the, even the people with John the Baptist, they're choosing to have him um, baptize yeah. them. You know, and so if it's a choice, it, it really should be something let uh, you know left to adults. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I had it in you know high school. I got baptized in high school. I think the main thing is that it's their choice. An infant yeah. can't make that choice. Um, you know, you can make that choice in high school. You know, the more you're kind of thinking for yourself, probably the better. But, um, you know, I don't think there's a defined age where it's okay, but it's, it's, it needs to be your choice. And I think that's the line that's kind of clear in scriptures because yeah. people are making that choice for themselves to uh, partake in this symbolic tradition of baptism. Now, let's to be fair to our story right let's try to put on their eyes for a moment because um, i don't know if i've really done this in thinking about this story okay so let's assume though that you believe that baptism and salvation are one and the same mm -hmm. that that you cannot be saved just by a personal decision that you make between yourself and god that you are saved by that plus being plunged into water and oftentimes an icy cold river in Germany. Uh, does that change the way that we see the, a movement, an upstart movement that comes around saying, no, 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 priests don't have the authority to make these decisions, first of all. We have the authority in and of ourselves. Okay, so that's strike one, right? Then strike two, you've got they're saying that they are being like resaved or true saved, but they were already saved. What does that do to your theological framework? How do you even think about that? I well, one I don't, I don't know. Did they? I mean, did did all of them think that this was something necessary for salvation? The Anabaptists. The Anabaptists? Uh, I think that they. I think that they did, but I'm not actually not sure. I'm not yeah, sure that I'm they not... believe that. But but we're talking but about the outsiders. They did. We're, we're looking at, at it from Catholic eyes and Lutheran eyes, right? Because the Lutherans also hated the Anabaptists generally. Oh, well, I mean, in, like you're looking at, you're looking at it from somebody who believes in infant baptism? Yes, and the well, idea yeah, that still... baptism is salvation. Those are, those are synonymous. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you're, at that point, you're steeped into a lot of tradition if if you if you believe that the tradition of the church is basically on par with scripture as, as like something god is communicating to you if you believe that i mean a lot of things are added like i can't yeah. honestly with integrity even answer that question because i can't put myself in that framework yeah because i haven't really explored that yeah um and i i just adamantly don't agree with that you know right, right like i like from the the core of my being i i look at all the problems in church history and i'm like that's not from god that's not from god that's not from god right like, like it and especially like i i just very much agree with luther and, and don't understand why he didn't come to that um conviction himself that yeah that, 
that adamantly stood opposed to it. Yeah, he did. He did. He did stand opposed, and I I don't understand how he didn't come to that with um, the understanding of sola scriptura. But, um, I mean, that's something I'm I'm a little confused by. But I think I think the truth is clear, and 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 I think the truth is that um, it is a choice that one makes um, as a symbolic tradition. But it's not necessary for salvation, um, and it's it's good. It's something God promotes. Yeah. Um, well, let's be clear. You are supposed to do it. It is a command. You are supposed to do it. It's not necessary for salvation. You're absolutely right. right. But you are supposed to do it. Well, that, generally, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something that God, you know, said. Like, I mean, in the Great Commission again, baptizing yeah. them in the name of the Father, the right. Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is a command. Yeah. Which is a, a command. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I don't think we need to spend more time on this because I think it's, it's clear what the truth is. Um, is polygamy promoted in the Bible? Polygamy. Um, yeah, this is probably one of the more, uh, saucy parts of the story is the, uh, all the sex, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, it gets pretty steamy at so, a certain so point. So Jan, Jan Van Leiden is a lusty... Pedophilic as well. Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I believe there was a lot of mention of, uh, like, uh, 11 and 12 year olds. Um, yeah, polygamy. So polygamy, okay, here's, here's my short and sweet response on the polygamy issue. I'm gonna read from, I just lost it. Um, <laughs> Of course, um, it's in. For, okay, I'm going to quote it. It's in First Timothy chapter three. You've got the qualifications for overseers and deacons. Yep. Paul says unequivocally, he says you are to be a husband of one wife, a man of one woman, and I believe he also says to clarify to women, uh, you are to be a woman of one man. Um, so, you know this this idea that I guess. When it comes to the polygamy, building a case against polygamy biblically, it's it's very clearly implied. It's not often explicitly commanded against, uh, but the implications are really loud. If you read the whole Bible, you should come to the end of it and go, oh yeah, yeah, polygamy is no good. Um, but I do think that the, where Paul says that is absolutely unequivocally clear that Leiden, a authority right spiritual authority yeah is in the wrong right i mean (laughs) it's like okay you could maybe make a convoluted case for polygamy and fool people who aren't very biblically literate that they as the the kind of new lay people are allowed to be polygamous but But he as the elder leader leader, prophet, prophet person paul very clearly says no you are not allowed to do that um, and, you know, it stands to reason that if the leader isn't supposed to do that and you're supposed to model yourself after the leader, you also are not supposed to do it. So we can build that case very easily. Um, but, yeah, it, it seems like um, it seems like Leiden really, really relied on the Old Testament when uh, I would argue that God simply had not made it clear that this was a stance he was going to take yet, that he was not going to preclude people from leadership for the sin of polygamy, which was rampant culturally at the time, uh, but eventually he he does make that clear and he he separates that out. Well, a dispensation of 
monogamy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, so uh, I think that the... Well, not to say that... Sorry, I do want to be clear. When we're talking about, you know, you throw out the term dispensation, I'm not saying that it was morally okay for them and that it was okay, that it's just not okay for us now. It was always not okay. It's just that dispensationally, the way that he regarded leadership, he didn't hone in on that issue clearly in the Old Testament. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think the the thing that I've come to on this is like the parts that talk about polygamy in the Old Testament are descriptive. They're describing what happened. Yeah. Um, it is never prescriptive right. or prescribing polygamy. Um, and that's something to really delineate. I think there's a lot of things in the Bible that are described that are not good, um, but that the Bible is not prescribing us to do. Right. Right? And so That happens a lot. That happens all the time. Not and, just this. Yeah, not even close. But that is what is going on here. I think, you know, it's clear... Um, especially in the Old Testament, Solomon, a lot of his biggest issues come down to his polygamy. Yeah. Um, he marries, um, you know, a plethora of women from other cultures. Um, they they uh, lead him to worshiping idols, and that really becomes his downfall. And, um, you know, the idea that I've heard about Song of Solomon is it's talking about, you know, his first wife. Um, and, and the kind of the love that he has for her and he seems so disconnected at the end. Yeah. Um, you know, what you're looking at with like Ecclesiastes. So I think, I think even that points to it, like even in the commands that God has for the Kings, it's like, don't marry, you know, a shit ton of wives, like, and don't marry outside of, you know, your culture. Yeah. And, and what happens, you know, a lot of them marry a shit ton of wives, and that tends to kind of be their downfall. Right. Um, so polygamy, you know, in, in that, I mean, like, what God prescribes there to the kings is, you know, it seems to be somewhat antithetical. Now it's it's more about, like, marrying within the culture. Um, but even then, it's like, you know, what's going to, what, what their destruction was, was their polygamy and, and their... And I think too, what it leads to is like this this view of sex, like, like, you know, you're just what I mean. If I marry, if I have enough money and I just marry everyone, then I can have sex with whoever, right? Right, right. That's that's the idea at that point. Yeah. And it's just it's just an excuse for promiscuity. Uh, that's you know, thinly veiled as marriage. Yeah. It, it's it's a load of crap. I mean, it, yeah. There are peoples today who are against you know extramarital sex and some people will you know go to a place marry a prostitute then divorce the prostitute and leave that's right. legalism yeah that's not you know i think the kind of the it's a largely muslim practice that's isn't it? A, yeah that's uh, specifically in, in specific parts of the world but um but that's you know that's against the the essence of what God's saying about marriage. And yeah. I think if you read the Bible, that, that becomes very evident. Yeah. Yeah, I, w I would agree. I think what's, and Dan Carlin hits at this, um, but what's very strange is the often the connection between these charismatic leaders 
and a gross sexual appetite. Um, you know, he mentions David Koresh did almost identically the same thing, except that if I remember correctly, I believe that David Koresh said that God told him to practice this and no one else. Uh, <laughs> actually, if I remember correctly, he told David Koresh that David was supposed to have sex with all of the wives, all of the women, and that none of the other men were allowed to have sex with their previous sure. wives. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's the way that, that that whole thing worked. Very strange. But also, like, Charles Manson was known for, uh, you know, just this gross sexual appetite um, and, and this hunger for this lust. And I, I'm not exactly sure what it is. It seems to go hand in hand. Uh, my, I mean, my guess would be that basically once you open yourself to the floodgates of you know, unrestricted power and unrestricted carnality yeah. that, that a sexual appetite is soon to follow. But, uh, but yeah, Leiden seems to really go off the rails and, and he almost seems to kind of lose his authority over this issue. It, it, it does become, it's contentious, but then he yeah. manages to, uh, kind of put the nail in the coffin. And, and I think that that's where he really has to rely on this whole kingship idea is, is to kind of really seal the deal and say, no, I am the authority. You will still listen to me and you will do what I say. Yeah. And you'll marry three women. <laughs> yeah. And you will also marry three women. Also there, there is, uh, in that city at the time, there is this unique situation where there had been all these nuns, these young nuns. Yeah who had been in these convents and they had left them to be a part of the Anabaptist movement. Yep. And they had specifically um, been interested in this idea that they were actually allowed to marry after all and that that would be a good thing. And now you have all of these women and not as many men and they're young and attractive and uh, the guys want them. Yeah. I mean, even Martin Luther married a runaway nun. I mean, like a right. lot of these, a lot of these, which is kind of beautiful. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'd be kind of cool to marry a runaway nun. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, during this time, you know, the theological revolution is, is leading to a lot of dissonance and, and people are revolting against, you know, the Catholic Church. And a lot of these nuns are like, you know, this is a message that says that you know i can have sex if that's something i want to do and some of these nuns you know were placed there by their parents because their parents right. wanted them to be nuns so then you're like okay well you know if you don't even want to be there yeah you know like of course so and life as a nun was a lot better than life as a peasant girl you know so th there's there's not just there's reasons you know, why people uh, there, there's nuns. reasons why people enter the uh, the nunnery the the convents and the uh, the monasteries beyond um, just the spiritual. Although I certainly wouldn't want to downplay the spiritual. I think that's a mistake that we make in our secular oh, culture a, yeah. that, that we kind of downplay religious nuns. motivations. There's a lot of them. But um, you know, certainly to be a monk or a nun at this time is preferable. But you're having to give up. Um, you know what you would consider kind of a, a natural form of way of life which natural would be to desire. yeah these natural human desires and not everyone who is in there uh, really wanted to go for that aspect of it yeah yeah and so it's like all these nuns are here they're they're trying to get it on yeah. nobody's we don't have enough men to marry them so right let's how about we let men marry more up? women yeah it uh, is a simple solution yeah 
Yeah. I don't think that was the initial cause. I think I I, I yeah. do think Lyden probably cheated, and then oh, was yeah, like, oh, uh, oh, let's circle the drain here. But then yeah, that ended up being like an argument that he could make that was like, oh, right. we got all these people here who want to get married, but yeah. there's not enough men. Da, da, da. Yeah. It well, worked out pretty well for him for uh, his remaining time yes. in Munster, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then, so the question, uh, the other question we were going to talk about is how do you separate separate the charlatan from the prophet? Yeah. This, this is a, a question that I think is really important, and I wish I had really good answers for it, but I, I'm interested where our discussion will go because, you know, this is something that we still deal with today especially you know i don't see yeah. a lot of false prophets calling for polygamy in my church um so you know that's not really something that i'm having to wrestle with right now but certainly in our society we see charlatans all over the church and it's killing our um kind of authority like our our trustability reputation it's killing our reputation it's killing our witness to the world and so you know, this this is really important. I would say that the, the first answer goes back to something that, uh, Frank, you've hinted on, or, you know, hit on several times already, which is Luther's um, conviction of sola scriptura, right? That we, we rest in the word. And so, you know, when it comes to people who are promising all kinds of things, hold that up to the light of scripture. And you know, you might be sitting here listening to this and thinking, okay, you know, I'd like to do that, but I don't actually, you know, know how to read the Bible. That book is really difficult to read. Well, you know, fortunately, there are actually rules and ways to engage with the Bible that are incredibly helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this whole subject that you can look into called hermeneutics um, that, that will help you to understand how to interpret the Bible. Um, but, but certainly we can look at what God has already said in black and white and we can use that to help us identify people who are promising things that aren't in black and white yeah no i i think that's a, that's probably number number one um is is really comparing what people say what the pastor says to scripture i think the other really important thing is thinking for yourself yeah um i think a lot of issues not just spiritually but even like politically and in in other parts of life come from people not choosing to really build their own convictions um and if you don't build your own convictions and you don't um have like a reason why you believe something then you can be led astray and you're you're vulnerable to that and and so like if we as lay people listen passively and don't, you know, don't learn the truth for ourselves, we are vulnerable, definitely vulnerable to being led astray. Um, lucky if we're not. Yeah. Very lucky if we're not, you know. Um, we need critical thinking. That is one of the... Um, I think most important skills to develop as a human being is to think for yourself, be able to build an argument for why you believe in something, why something is right. Because no matter who you are or what you believe, there's going to be all these other beliefs thrown at you and you should know what you're standing on. 
and why you're standing on it. Yeah. And I think that is what adolescence in, in a major way should be about is learning through experience, through education, through life, you know, what resonates and is true and then building strong convictions you know that that we build our lives on from there and i think that's what adolescence should be you know we make mistakes we you know and and there needs to be some of this um it, it, academic integrity of admitting when we're wrong i think a lot of times pride becomes a something that's in the way like we've believed this or we've acted like we've believed this for so long um but there's new evidence that promotes another idea Academic integrity and, and intellectual integrity says follow the evidence, yeah. follow that to its conclusion. And, and no matter where we are in our life, we should be willing to do that. We should be able to admit when we're wrong. And yeah, like it may be a humbling point, but that's okay. Yeah. The truth is important because if we build our lives on the truth, then we're going to, you know, in terms of Christianity, if you build your life on the gospel and you believe that God, you know, died on the cross to save you from your sins, you have eternity to look forward to, right? That yeah. is that is a truth that if you build on, you will be eventually experiencing the positive consequences of that choice, right? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things like that. And so we need to think critically for ourselves with in intellectual integrity um, and these charismatic figures it, we we need to be skeptical of the people who who's are smooth talkers we need to hold their words to a standard that we ourselves have come to a conviction of if we're able to hold their words you know the people who are smooth talking to a conviction and they align yeah that's a point of trust if they are opposed to what, you know, we've built our lives on, then we're not going to listen to them. And I think that's the thing is like, there's a lot of good marketing out there. There's a lot of good sweet talkers out there. Um, what do you believe? And you shouldn't just believe something because somebody said it. Yeah. Or you shouldn't just believe something because they made it sound good. Like, you should look into the evidence for yourself and there are so many people who are trying to sweet talk you and pursue you in different ways and you could follow any of them but yeah. you have to make the choices of who you're going to follow and what you're going to build your life on and i think if you if you build your life on truth i think you're going to see the charlatan and you're going to point them out but if if you don't know the truth to build your life on it's very easy you're definitely vulnerable yeah yeah, and I, I think that something that you said uh, might be kind of surprising for our non-believing audience, which uh, is the idea that, you know, you have to think for yourself. And I, I think that I know that when I was an atheist, um, and yes, I was an, an atheist into my adult life um, before I became a Christian, that, that I did not think that Christians thought for themselves ever. You know, I, I very much believed that Christians must be the kind of people who, you know, leave their brain at the door as soon as they enter a church and, you know, that, that you're not allowed to think. Um, and that is absolutely not true. Um, if you are a Christian more than anyone, you should be thinking. Um, 
but uh, but I, I do I do want to kind of you know touch on that and say that I, I completely agree and I think that that's really important um, I do have a practical tip actually um, what what does your pastor drive <laughs> what what does your church leader drive to and from your church uh, if the question becomes what does your pastor fly uh, they are a charlatan. <laughs> yeah. I will tell you unequivocally, you have a charlatan on your hands if they have a jet. Uh, but if they, you know, if they're driving a Rolls Royce, I'm sorry, they're they're probably a charlatan. Um, I, I have a hard time even thinking about a scenario where they might not be, but I can tell you that they most likely are. Um, you know, sure, some pastors are paid pretty well because they lead a large congregation, and do I think that's right? Not really, but do I think it's you know something that means that they're a charlatan? No, I don't. Uh, but if they are driving you know fancy cars and they have really nice clothes and you know they they've they've clearly got you know a nice big house, whatever. Like follow the money to some extent, right? Yeah. I mean, if these people are making a ton of money and spending a lot of money, because your pastor may make a lot and they may give a lot, and that's totally fine, right? Uh, you have to make money to give money. But if your pastor makes a lot of money and they spend a lot of money on themselves, you can be sure that they're a charlatan. Yeah, I think the PJ is about as sure thing as a, as a like if your pastor has a PJ, private jet. Okay, thank you. Yeah, sorry. For those of us who are cool enough to be in the private yeah. jet lingo club, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah. If your if your pastor has a PJ, yeah, he's a charlatan. Yeah. Like I think that's straight that's up. The same. Or she. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, you know, uh, whatever pronoun they subscribe to. Sure. The pastor, if they have a, if, if they have a PJ. If it's not he or she, I might also think that they're a charlatan, but, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I I'll, mean, I'll submit that. Before uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, if, if your pastor has a PJ. Yeah. Leave that church. Yep. Get, seriously. I, I would agree. Walk out. <laughs> Yeah, get to stepping. If mean, your pastor doesn't have a car at all, uh, just figure out whether or not what they're saying is legit because you can be sure that they're in it for the right reasons. If they're walking everywhere, well, dude, if, they're, if, if they're walking on the streets. What if they're in, they live in New York City? Okay, fair enough. Even in New York City, I think that a rich pastor would probably drive. But, you know, have, have a private car, right? They'd, they'd have a driver. Uh, but you know, I, I'm referring more they to our Uber potential, Gold. Uber you know, Gold our, our potential uh, international audience is more so who I'm talking to. Uh, the PJ, that, the PJ. Though. You know that uh, that if your if your pastor is like you know walking uh, to and from local villages, uh, yeah, you probably don't have to worry about this question as much. Well, okay, you still have to worry. I mean, like no matter how much money the person, may, I, I think it's the the easiest litmus test. Yeah. But like you know, there are people out there. Who, who preach a false message. I, I think no matter well, who you are... Saying. Just worry about what they're saying, what, not necessarily yeah, yeah. their motives. Yeah, yeah, or their motors. Or their motors, yes, very nice. <laughs> motives, motors... Yeah, these two go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. I think I think we found something. That that might be helpful. So, so you know, if, if you want to question, you know, whether you're following a charlatan, look at their potential motives. Yep. Or, or look at their lifestyle, their motors. Yep. You know... What what are they preaching? Are they preaching something that specifically benefits them? Yeah, yeah. Like health and wealth is something too. Like yeah, it like the Bible is not a message of like 
you're going to live an easy life if right. your pastor is preaching that if you in just fact, trust it's God. It's the opposite. It's yeah. pretty clearly the opposite. It's clearly the opposite. <laughs> so. If your pastor is preaching that the Bible, you know, has an easy path if you just turn to God more, that's, you know, that's, that's a load of crap. Load Look at what crap. happened to Jesus. Yeah. So he was the most faithful man ever, and uh, he didn't have any PJs. No, tell you that much. Yeah, Jesus didn't have. Didn't even a PJ. have any pajamas. I mean, that yeah. guy was poor. No, Jesus, Jesus didn't have a PJ. That's no, for sure. For sure. Well, uh, you know, if you're listening to this on a PJ, you know, <laughs> yeah, hopefully you learned some valuable things. But uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, another uh, fun episode of Time to Be Frank. Um, if you have any other thoughts or questions or anything, hit us up. But yeah, the, the, the main story um, we discuss and we, we give a synopsis of at the beginning um, is uh, from the episode Prophets of Doom on Hardcore History. Check it out. Dan Carlin does a great job presenting this historical story. It is four and a half hours, so you are signing up for a lot. Um, but it's it's worth it. It's like it's worth every minute. It, it's really a, a compelling story where you learn a lot, and it's it's just fun to, to think about and talk about. And that's what you know, always we did here. So thanks for tuning in, guys.